How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather together to be refreshed by your word, to gain a greater understanding of your plans and purposes for mankind, as well as to see uh, how you have acted in, uh, in the past in human history in order to bring about our so great salvation. Now, Father, as we study your word this evening, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we study, that we may have a greater appreciation of your working in history. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, starting tonight, we come to one of the more interesting episodes in Genesis. And that's at the beginning of Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6 is a prelude to the flood episode in the Scriptures. And we won't get into the flood, per se, for probably a few more weeks. But this is the introduction to the flood, why there was a need for such a catastrophic worldwide judgment, and this section in chapter 6, 1 through 8, is actually the conclusion of the third division of Genesis. So let's just review briefly how Genesis is structured. Genesis is structured around these sections known as toledotes. That's the Hebrew word, and it's sometimes translated uh, generation or record or sometimes even history, it has the idea that what follows the Toledot section is the history of the group that preceded it. So we have uh, the first division in the book is the introduction, and that was creation from Genesis 1-1 to 2-3. And then the second division is the first Toledot, and that is what happened to this perfect creation, uh, the generation of the heavens and the earth, and that extends from Genesis 2-4 down through 4-26. And then the third division, which is the second Toledot, is the generations of Adam. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. This is the book of the generation or history of Adam, starting in 5-1 down through Six, eight. This is a short section. Last time we looked at the main part of it, which is the genealogy list in Genesis chapter 5, which describes the descendants of Adam through his son Seth. We don't know how many other sons and daughters he had. It's speculative, but he had 
uh, numerous sons and daughters. We have postulated that if he, in a conservative postulation, that if he had only six sons and daughters, and each generation had only six, three couples, then by the time you get to the flood episode in chapter 6, approximately 1,656 years have gone by, and during that time you would have a population on the earth, since you have eight or nine generations living at the same time, you would have a population of somewhere between six and seven billion people on the face of the earth. So it was a dynamic uh, civilization. It was a technically advanced civilization. They had metallurgy. They had music. They had uh, agriculture. And it all is destroyed by the flood. Now, the, chapter 5 merely focuses on the overall Details of what took place during this time genealogically from one generation to the next. Chapter 6 comes in and describes what is happening spiritually during this same period. And it begins with an unusual episode which is, which has generated a tremendous amount of controversy in terms of how to interpret it. And we'll get into that this evening. Verse 1, now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them. And this begins our introduction. It's the first part of a sentence that extends down through the second verse, but it should be uh, correctly translated. Now, it came about when mankind began to multiply on the face of the of the land the word translated man is actually the singular hebrew noun adam it is distinguished from adam's name because when you look at the last word in this verse this is a third person plural ending on a hebrew verb born to them so obviously the them refers back to a noun which could only be the word Adam, and therefore it is what's called a collective noun. It's singular in form, but it refers to a large number. So it should properly be translated when mankind began to multiply on the face of the land. Actually, the word for land is the Hebrew word Adama, which means the ground. It's different from, it could be land, ground or land, but it is different from Eretz, which is the word for earth and which is often translated land when it applies to the promised land, to the land of Israel. So we should translate this, the it's not the earth, Eretz, or the land, Eretz, referring to the land of Israel, but it is Adama, the ground. And then the emphasis is on daughters were born to them. So the emphasis here is not on sons, but the emphasis is on daughters. Now, just a note of observation that we'll need to keep in our back of our minds as we go through this chapter. If you go back and examine the genealogy of Cain, there's no mention of daughters. It doesn't mean they didn't have any, just that the author doesn't mention them, and uh, they're not of significance. But in chapter 5, when we get into the genealogy of Seth, there are nine mentions of sons and daughters. So daughters are mentioned 
nine times in relationship to the descendants of Seth. Daughters are not mentioned at all in relationship to Cain. Now, that's just a minor point, but it's one of emphasis that will be will have a significant implication uh, as we get into an interpretation of this passage in a few minutes. Now, our correct translation then of verse 1 is that then mankind began to multiply upon the face of the ground, and daughters were born to them. Then we come to the second verse, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they, that is, the daughters or the sons of God, whomever they chose. Now, this introduces us to the second great attack on the human race by demonic forces, by Satan. The first was his attack in the garden. Uh, this is the second the third assault comes during the tribulation. The third assault is going to come during the uh, tribulation period when there will be three different attacks on the human race. There will be an attack under the command of a demon called Abaddon or Apollyon. Abaddon in the Hebrew or Apollyon in the Greek meaning destroyer or we could even translate it terminator. Revelation 9, 1 through 12, then there will be a demon assault army that attacks from under the Euphrates River in Revelation 9, 12 to 21. Then there will be a third demon army uh, that attacks uh, in Revelation 12, 7 to 17. So those are the three major demonic assaults that take place in human history, and this is the second one. But this phrase... Sons of God is one that has generated a tremendous amount of debate and discussion in terms of just exactly what this word means. The word itself in the Hebrew is the phrase B'nai Ha Elohim. Now this, the Hebrew word B'nai is the word for son. And here it's in the plural, but it's also in what's called a construct form. Uh, in, in Hebrew, you don't have a genitive case like you do in, in Greek. Uh, what happens is the noun is placed in construct, and that means it's essentially a genitival relationship. So it's the sons of, and then you have this H-A here, is a definite article preceding Elohim, the generic word for God. So it's the sons of the God, but actually you don't translate the um the definite article in this particular case. So it's, it's simply called the sons of God, B'nai Ha Elohim. And the sons of God look upon the daughters of men and see that they're beautiful, and they take wives for themselves. Now, who are these sons of God? There are three interpretations that are offered for understanding this particular episode. The first interpretation looks at the term sons of God and daughters of men and relates that to two classifications of human beings. The sons of God, in this view, stands for either the descendants in the Seth line or believers in general, and then the, they take the term daughters of men to, re, uh, to relate to descendants in the Cain line. So we can summarize it by saying that uh, this is the apostate view. 
It views the sons of God as believers, the believing line. Some some would restrict it to only Seth, but there are some that recognize you can't do that because by the time you get down to to, to uh, Noah, there are only eight believers on the planet. So you can't really restrict it genealogically, although that's the view in its purest form. So that view takes sons of God as as the spiritual uh, descendants and daughters of men as those who are unregenerate. And this would be two different groups of human beings. Now, the reason this view has some some uh, support is because of a misunderstanding or of Hebrew. And now I want to make sure I honestly represent the men who take this view because many of them are Hebrew scholars. In fact, there's a classic Old Testament commentary series out by Kylan Dalich. It's it's uh, well well used and well worn, and both of those men were considered experts in Hebrew, and yet they took this position. And according to th- this view, they the proponents of this view will go to phrases such as Israel, my son, my firstborn, in Exodus 4:22. They'll seek support in the phrase sons of Yahweh, in Deuteronomy 14:1. And the phrase children of God in Deuteronomy 32.5 and many other phrases that focus on this idea of the Jews as being sons of God and they will argue that that's, uh, that it's, it, we should not use Beneha Elohim here as a technical term for angels. That there are many places where human beings are referred to as children of God or sons of Yahweh in the passage so this does not necessitate an angelic interpretation. In their view, this genitive that exists, that I referred to as the construct form, the sons of God, that that genitive for them is taken as what's called an attributive genitive. And in that sense, it would be translated godly sons. So in their view... They would translate this, that the godly sons saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. So they're contrasting two different classes of human beings, believers versus unbelievers. And basically what they're saying is that believers started intermarrying with unbelievers, and that is what screwed everything up. Now, there's a number of problems with this particular view. One problem is that if you take it this way, it's clearly sons saw daughters. You can't get away from that. It's males looking upon females. It would be godly believers looking upon ungodly, I mean godly men looking upon ungodly women. Now I know that happens, but that's not what this is talking about. See, if, if that's, if that's, if their interpretation's correct, it, this is, would be only presenting a one-way problem. That the believing men were attracted to the unbelieving women. What about unbelieving men being attracted to the believing women? See, it's got a problem because this directs it in only one way. The second problem that we see in the text is that it, uh, or the second problem we see with this view is that it avoids the context which suggests that there were only eight survivors of this antediluvian civilization. And that would indicate that by the time you get down to just a hundred or hundred years prior to the flood, because what we will note is that God gives them 120 years of grace in verse 3, that by that time 
there would be just a handful of believers. So you wouldn't have sons of God intermarrying. I mean, if that's believing men, you wouldn't have too many believing men left over. The third problem with this view is that it doesn't make sense based on word usage. Here, and what they're trying to do is make the word daughters refer to the descendants of Cain. But contextually, remember I just pointed out that daughters are never mentioned in relationship to that line. Daughters are mentioned nine times in relationship to the Seth line. So that's just a literary device that the author uses, which indicates that he's not contrasting the Cain line with the Seth line. And then fourth, a fourth problem with that view is that sonship terminology outside of Genesis and outside of Job, because remember Job is a very early book, maybe earlier than Genesis. Outside of Job and Genesis, sonship is a term that relates to the privileged position of Israel as a theocratic covenant nation adopted to God. And then the fifth problem is that it falls apart on the technical use of this phrase. Beneha Elohim is a technical phrase that is used several times in Scripture to refer to angels, and it is only used to refer to angels. Now, the second view, and this is a view that most of you have probably never heard of. I didn't hear about this view till I was in seminary, and we had to read a paper by a man who I've come to know through the pre-trib rapture conference now. He's probably about 10 or 15 years older than I am, but he's a well-known Hebrew scholar. And he takes the position that sons of God here stands for dynastic dictators or autocrats that forced these young, beautiful maidens to marry them, and then they developed huge harems. In this view, it's this polygamous destruction of the divine institution of marriage that's the problem. So of the three interpretations, the first one is apostates and the second one is autocrats. And this view is based on a, an unusual use of the word Elohim in the scriptures. The general word or generic word for God is Elohim. E-L-O-H-I-M. The I-M is the plural ending. L is the title for God. Now, in some passages, for example, in Exodus 21.6, and in that case, it's a case of a casuistic law dealing with slaves. You have a problem with your slave or your servant. You take him to a judge. In the New American Standard, the word that, that translates the Hebrew, they translate it with God. But you wouldn't take, in that context, you wouldn't be taking your slave to God to adjudicate a problem. You would be taking your, your slave to a judge. And so the term Elohim is used at times to refer to judges in Israel because they are administering justice in the nation in God's name. We've, you find this in several different passages in the scriptures, Exodus 21, 6, 22, 8, and 9, and uh, 22, 28. Uh, also, it's found in Psalm 82. So the term Elohim was used to refer to rulers. And so the people who hold this view 
go back to ancient Near Eastern cultures and see where, for example, in Egypt and in other cultures, the king was viewed as divine, and he was called the son of Ra or the son of uh, Osiris or some other uh, god in the Egyptian pantheon. So they look at the term sons of God as a term relating to the, these despotic uh, dictators in the antediluvian period and claim that what they were doing was dis- basically uh, destroying the human race through their carnality and through the amassing of these huge harems, etc. There are several problems with this position. First of all, the passage is, that they cite in dealing with uh, using Elohim as a term for theocratic rulers doesn't uh, line up when dealing with the specific term Beneha Elohim. You don't have that terminology, sons of, in those passages. Furthermore, in each of the cases cited in Exodus and in the Psalms, the judge is a representative of God. He is viewed as a righteous judge representing God. But in Genesis 6, the sons of God are, are made by these same folks to represent the line of Cain, the reprobate rulers, rather than righteous rulers. So in order to get around this, they try to make this a genitive of description, that is, the sons of God being a class of people, but then they also want to use Elohim in a positive sense referring to God. So they want to do two different things with it at the same time. And that violates basic rules of hermeneutics. And then just one other note. Uh, there is a new view that's coming out that I've read in a couple of commentaries that tries to merge this view with the angel interpretation. In other words, what they try to say is it's talking about these despotic rulers, but they were demon-possessed. So they try to solve some problems that way, and that's that's really uh, doesn't work either. So, so far we've seen that there are two uh, different interpretations that are suggested for this passage that don't work. And if you've got a New International Version study Bible or some other study Bible, it may mention these different views. So I thought I would introduce them and interact with them a little bit. Now, there are two basic problems that, in my opinion, destroy the interpretation of either one or two. Neither, neither of these first two positions addresses these two questions. First of all, so what if the unbelievers and the believers are intermarrying? How is that going to destroy the human race? Why would that necessitate God destroying the entire human race? I mean, we live in a time when you've got all kinds of believers marrying unbelievers. And there's no need for God to destroy the entire human race. Same thing with the problem with the despotic rulers. Why would it be necessary to wipe out all but eight people in the human race if that's a problem? Then the other problem that neither one of these views addresses is the evidence that comes from the New Testament epistles of Peter and Jude. There is New Testament commentary. You can't, if you stuck with just the Old Testament, you might have a problem or might be able to justify a problem. But if, once you get into the passages in 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and Jude, then it becomes pretty clear what must have taken place in Genesis 6. So the third view is the view that most of you are familiar with, the one that I have always held to, and that is the view that the term sons of God is a technical term for angels. Uh, 
a technical term for angels, and in this case, fallen angels or demons, who seduce these young women and married them and produce a genetically defiled offspring. That's what's going on here. Now, of course, the, the question that always comes up is, how in the world can angels marry? What do you do with Matthew 22.30? Matthew 22.30, Jesus said, For in the resurrection, they, referring to angels, neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So the emphasis is that there is no marriage among the angels in heaven, according to Jesus. So why can, what about what's taking place here? Remember, in verse 2, the text states that they saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves. It's clear terminology, clear Hebrew verbiage for marriage. You can't say that it's rape. You can't say that it's simply seduction. It's not like what you have pictured in some of the Greek or Roman or other pagan myths where Jupiter or Zeus or some other uh, god comes down and sees some beautiful woman and seduces her or rapes her, and she becomes pregnant and has some sort of half-god, half-man offspring. That clearly comes from this episode, but you can't... Um, you can't say that what's happening here is is rape or just some one-night stand. It is clear from the language that there was an intermarriage going on between the sons of God and the daughters of men. So before we get into explanations of how this could take place, let's make sure we have a correct interpretation of the phraseology. So we have the term Beneha Elohim, or it's sometimes simply B'nai Elohim. The definite article is left off in Job 38.7. And we find it in passages such as Job 1.6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before Yahweh, and Satan also came among them. So Satan is clearly seen as one of the sons of God. So the term sons of God then clearly includes both elect and fallen angels. Then again, in Job 2.1, and notice, uh, one other side note here on Job 1.6, that the sons of God come together before the Lord, and there is some sort of angelic convocation, a regular assembly or council that includes all of the angels, even the fallen angels, and that this continued through the Old Testament period. Job 2.1, again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. So this, again, is a convocation of all of the angels, an angelic council. But, it, but they're not called simply angels. They're called sons of God. And Satan also came among them to present themselves before the Lord. And then we have our third reference in Job, Job 38.7. When, which is talking about creation. God is speaking, and he is asking rhetorical questions of Job, and he says, Where were you when the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy? And this term, sons of God, then includes all of the angels, and at the time of the creation of the laying of the foundations of the earth, all the sons of God were united together. 
A variation of this term occurs in both Psalm 29, verse 1, and in Psalm 89, 7. And in those two passages, they're thought to be angels. But you have to be careful because you can't just sit down with your English Bible and look for the term in the Old Testament sons of God. Now, because uh, God in the Old Testament can sometimes be a translation of Yahweh rather than Elohim. Furthermore, in the New Testament, the phrase son of, sons of God refers to church-age believers because we're adopted into the royal family of God. So there's a difference in meaning between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In fact, one uh, world-class theologian that I'm aware of who published a systematic theology a few years ago in his section on angelology uh, used the Deuteronomy 14.1 passage as an example of why sons of God can refer to human beings. Unfortunately, he failed to open up his Hebrew text to note that it's not Beneha Elohim. The name for God there was Yahweh, and it's not the same grammatical structure either. It's not that construct form of B'nai. It was a completely different way of expressing sonship. So you always have to check your Hebrew and make sure that what you're teaching is part of the original languages. Second thing we can need to observe is that in extra-biblical literature in the surrounding cultures, they had a similar expression. Usually it was B'nai El or B'nai Ali, which is similar to the phrase sons of God that we find in the Scripture. In the Ugaritic texts, which were found in uh, the northern part of Canaan, in the Azitawada inscription and the amulet from Arslan Tash, there are similar statements relating to uh, certain divine beings or gods as the sons of God. So what we have here, just a reminder, it's not that the Bible is influenced by pagan literature, but the Bible records accurate history, and then as time went by, man muddled everything up and corrupted the memory and forgot what happened. And so what we find in mythology is just a pale reflection, a corrupted, distorted version of what happens in the Bible. So when we go to passages like the Ugaritic texts and we see a mention of the sons of God in relating to this convocation of, uh, of deities on the Mount of Assembly in the north, that is simply a distorted memory of the truth that the angels met in council with God. But it does give us an indication that that terminology B'nai Elohim has to do with not mankind, but these sort of divine supernatural beings. Third thing, some people argue that if angels are meant, then the text would use the normal term for angels, malaach. This is the Hebrew word for angel. Looks like this. M-A-L-A-K, Malaak. And Malaak simply means a messenger, same as the Greek word angelos, which also means messenger. 
So some would argue that, well, if God were talking about angels here, he'd make it clear and use the term malaak. But what we discover is that when the term includes those that eventually fell, when it includes the whole convocation of angels, including fallen angels, then the term sons of God is used. When it is referring to those who are obedient to God and those who are carrying out his wishes and commands, then the term malaak or angel is used. Otherwise, the term sons of God is used when it includes the demons and even Satan. A fourth point that we need to remember is one that we've seen numerous times, and that is that the phrase sons of is a Hebrew idiom to describe the characteristics of someone or something, such as a fool is described as a son of a fool because he has the characteristics of a fool, not because his father or grandfather is a fool. A person is called the son of a murderer because he is uh, has the characteristics of a murderer, not because he is descended from a murderer. So in this case, angels, because they have such great powers and are so much closer to God than humans are, are designated sons of God to emphasize the fact that from man's perspective they seem to be divine. And furthermore, the term son of B'nai can denote a specific group or class of people such as the sons of the prophets in First Kings 20 verse 35. So the term sons of God then refers to these angelic beings, the fallen angels. Fifth point, the terminology that's used here is similar to that that is used in Canaanite circles for the council of the gods. And again, I remind you that that idea of the council of the gods was just a pale reflection, a distorted memory of the time prior to the flood uh, when uh, God was when all of the angels would gather around God. So we have evidence of this angelic council being referred to in the scriptures. In Psalm uh, 89, verse 5, we read, The heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the holy ones. And there the word holy ones is the Hebrew kadshim, which describes angels. So there's this angelic assembly. In verse 6, for who in the skies is comparable to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty? And there it's B'nai Elim, which again is a term, the sons should be translated the sons of God. It's a term for the angels. Who among the sons of God is like the Lord? And then in Psalm 89.7 we read, A God greatly feared in the counsel of the holy ones, and awesome above all those who are around him, that is, all those who encircle him or surround him. Psalm 89.8, O Lord God of hosts, that is, Yahweh uh, Elohim Shabbat, who is like you, Almighty Lord, your faithfulness also surrounds you. So what we see in the Scriptures is a clear evidence that there is an angelic, Council that includes both the fallen angels as well as the elect angels. Now that takes care of the Old Testament data. Let's look at the New Testament. It is the New Testament that gives clarification to this episode. Turn in your Bibles to Jude chapter 6. Jude is the second to last book in your New Testament.
And if you go spinning past it too much, too quickly, you'll, uh, you'll miss it because it's only a page. There are only uh, 25 verses in Jude. In Jude verses 6 and 7, we have a fascinating reference to a group of angels who were judged in the past and are chained in darkness to this day, awaiting judgment. And this sheds light on the episode of Genesis 6. There in Jude 6 we read, And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now let's make some observations on this verse before we get into verse 7. First of all, we read the phrase, who did not keep their own domain. That word domain translates the Greek word arche. The Greek word arche, which can mean first or first principles, but it also means a domain or a sphere of influence or power. It can mean first in order or first in initial position in time. So it could be translated angels who did not keep their first position, or it could be translated angels who did not keep their own sphere of influence or power. I prefer the latter. Angels who did not stay in their own sphere of influence or power because of the verb. They abandoned something. They abandoned something, but they abandoned, they left their proper abode. And the word there translated abode, that arrow is going wrong, the word there translated proper abode is the Greek word oikiterion, oikiterion from that uh, compound word and the first part oike from oikos meaning house or inhabitation. So oikaterion is the word for habitation or dwelling place. So these are angels who did not keep their uh, first position or their uh, proper uh, domain, their proper, uh, did not keep their proper sphere of influence or power, but they abandoned their proper ab- habitation, their correct habitation. And for these angels, we're told that he has kept them in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And this word that is uh, translated uh, darkness is the Greek word zaphos, which is not simply a place where there is darkness. That would be skados. This is a place where that's associated with de- despair, depression, gloom, and misery. It's a deep, miserable, gloomy darkness where these angels are imprisoned. Now, verse 7 states that just as there's a comparison now between the angels who did not keep their own domain and Sodom and Gomorrah. We have a, a comparative adverb here or a comparative adjective, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they 
in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality. Now, the problem with that phraseology in the English is that you lose sight of who the them, the they, and the these refer to. This is where the knowledge of the original language clarifies because you have these pronouns are going to be either feminine, masculine, or neuter, and which they are is going to indicate uh, whether they were which nouns they refer to. So let's break it down. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, that's a feminine plural, so that refers to the cities. Cities is a Greek word, polis, meaning uh, city, and it's a feminine noun. Since they, once again, feminine, uh, th- once again, this refers, refers to the cities. It's the, uh, the they here isn't a separate pronoun. It is the third person plural ending on the noun exhibited that comes later on in the sentence. So you separate the third person pronoun up here from its verb here, yet in the Greek they're all the same word. The cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, so here's your comparison, in the same way as who? In the same way as the cities or in the same way as the angels? The these here refers to the angels. It's a masculine plural pronoun. That means it can't refer to the cities because that would entail a feminine plural pronoun. So, uh, the comparison is that they, that is the cities, in the same way as the angels indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. So what we see here is a comparison between Sodom and Gomorrah and is saying that they imitated a sin that occurred previously and that they're conducting themselves in the same way as these, that is, as the angels. So obviously, if the sin at Sodom and Gomorrah had to do with a sexual perversion, then the sin of the angels must also involve a sexual perversion. So the text says, since they, the cities, in the same way as these, that is the angels, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, That's, that is flesh of a different kind. So that indicates that the angels, in some way, even though they have immaterial bodies, that in some way they are involved in sexual immorality with a flesh that is not the same as their own. And they are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So the term for when after strange flesh is the Greek word heteros, that is of a different kind, another of a different kind, flesh sarkos. So what we can say is, according to the Bible, there is an immaterial body and there is a material body, and these immaterial angels in some way were attracted to and went after a material body. Now, how did that happen? How could angels who do not have physical bodies and are not sexual by nature have physical sex? Well, we don't know all the answers to that, but we do know some things that the Scripture says 
that make it plain uh, that, that they could do certain things materially. In Genesis chapter 15, let's just turn there. Genesis chapter 15. Excuse me, Genesis 18, not 15. Genesis 18, verse 1. There we read, Then the Lord appeared to him, that is to Abraham, by the terebinth trees of Mamre, as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he, that is Abraham, lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent, ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground. So they appear, these three visitors appear for all practical purposes to Abraham as men. And Abraham says to them in good manners of the ancient world, My Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be bought and wash your feet. Notice, they have physical feet that need to be washed and rest yourselves under the tree. They appear to need physical rest. And I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts, that is, eat, and after that you may pass by, and as much as you have come to your servant, do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, Quickly make ready three measures of fine meal, knead it, make cakes. In other words, start cooking dinner from scratch, baking the bread, letting it rise, cooking it. This was going to take time. This wasn't a microwave meal. They weren't going to send out to Domino's for pizza. It was going to take a while. And during that time, these three are resting. They're refreshing themselves. Their, their feet are being washed. In other words, all of these material things are taking place. During the same time, or, or, or when the meal's over with, they're going to eat. They're going to drink. They're going to sleep. During this time, they have all of the physical functions of a body. Furthermore, when we get down into the episode in Sodom and Gomorrah, two of these are angels. One is God. Two of these are angels, and they're going to go on to Lot to warn him in Sodom, and they're going to be such attractive men that the uh, homosexual perverts in Sodom are going to want to... Uh, have their way with them and engage them in, uh, this is where the term sodomy comes from. So they obviously have every appearance and function of a regular human body. So we can't answer all the questions, but apparently these immaterial angels, at least at one time, apparently God no longer allows them to do this, but at one time they could transform their immaterial bodies into a physical human body with all of the characteristics of physical bodies. And these fallen angels, or a certain group of these fallen angels, married with, took as wives, various human wives. And the purpose was to pervert or destroy the gene pool. It was an attack on the seed of the woman. Back in Genesis 3.15, God promised that salvation will come through the seed of the woman. And so the 
attack from the sons of God is an attack on the seed of the woman to destroy the genetic purity of the human race so that a Savior cannot come who is pure humanity. Now, this doesn't mean that every person was genetically tainted. I think what it means is that there was such a large amount of genetic uh, genetic distortion that it had reached a, a point where if it had been allowed to continue, it would have resulted in that, and so it was time for the Lord to stop this whole assault. And he did so, and he judged these angels. They are confined uh, in deep darkness, according to uh, Jude 6. Now, our second passage is in Second Peter 2, 2 Peter 2, verse 4. And this is, again, another reference to this event. If it doesn't refer to this event, we have no idea what it would refer to. Peter writes, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, what does he mean when they sinned? Is he talking about the original sin? If he's talking about the original sin, then all the angels would be imprisoned, all the fallen angels would be imprisoned, and all, and there wouldn't be demonic assaults. So he can't be speaking of the original fall of the angels. Peter writes, For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Now, the place of imprisonment is not hell, which is what you have in the English, but actually it's Tartarus. Tartarus is a different compartment of Hades, and in Greek mythology, this was the place where the ancient demigods were punished. So in extra-biblical literature, such as the book of Enoch, Tartarus is always said to be the place of judgment for fallen angels. So this... Tartarus, then, is a temporary place of judgment, sort of a holding tank for the uh, these angels of, from Genesis 6 until their final trial comes. They are committed to pits of darkness. This is the same idea of darkness that you have over in Jude chapter 6. The chains of darkness refers to Zophos again, which is a heavy, dark place of despair. And the sin is connected in verse 5 to the time of Noah. In verse 5 of Second Peter 2 we read, And he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So Second Peter 4 and 5 connects the timing of this angelic sin to the time of the flood uh, at, during Noah's life. Then our third passage is in 1 Peter 3:18 to 20. There we read for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So here Peter is going to move from the judgment of sin at the cross to show that God always judges sin. And that word, judgment, is a key word for understanding the flood. When we talk about creation, we talked about the distinction between the creator and the creature. When we talked about the fall, we talk about man's sin and man's uh, spiritual death and condemnation. 
But then we come to the flood, and the flood is always associated with judgment and salvation. So it is a picture in the New Testament of salvation. So here in 1 Peter 3.18, Peter is talking about Christ dying on the cross for our sins, and he he was put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive in the Spirit, in which, that is, in his Spirit also, he went and made proclamations to the spirits now in prison. But not all of the angels are in prison. The term spirits here is the word pneuma, which is often used to refer to the demons, the evil spirits. But he made proclamation to them now in prison. So there's two groups of demons. There are those that were free to roam the earth. These were the ones who cast out uh, various people they were uh, uh, possessing during the period of the Gospels. And then there are other demons or fallen angels who are in prison. 1 Peter 3.20, who once were disobedient. Now, this can't refer to the disobedience of their original fall. It has to refer to another disobedience. They were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Again, we see that there are angels that are imprisoned. The reason is some act of rebellion or disobedience which took place at the time of Noah. So when we put these three New Testament passages together with the with the Old Testament episode in Genesis 6, the only conclusion that we can come to is that the sons of God in Genesis 6-3 is a technical term describing uh, fallen angels who in some way were able to take on a human body and were able to procreate with uh, women that they had taken as wives. And the result of that union is described in verse 4 as Nephilim. It's translated giants in the King James, which is wrong. It's the Nephilim. Uh, and this offspring would have been uh, a genetically distorted offspring. They would not have been pure humanity. They would not have been pure angel. And this is the historical reality behind all those odd stories that you run into in various uh, pagan mythologies. Now, next time we'll come back and we'll take a look at that in a little more detail as well as the other circumstances leading up to the flood. And then we will get a brief introduction to the ark narrative beginning in chapter 7 with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening, this opportunity to get into the uh, text of Scripture to understand what exactly was happening in the in this episode. It was an assault on the human race to prevent uh, your being able to send a Savior who would be true humanity, the seed of the woman, to die on the cross for our sins. We see here a picture of how Satan continuously is assaulting the plan of salvation, but that you control history and that under your control, under your control, it is uh, clear that salvation was accomplished on the cross and that salvation is uh, completely performed by Jesus Christ on the cross. So there's nothing that we can add to it, nothing we can do to uh, make ourselves savable. All we need do is accept the free gift of salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. Now, Father, we ask that you would uh, 
Help us to understand the things that we studied tonight. We see this in, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.